Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with dev first and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Brian Douglas, aka B Dougie, as known on Twitter, on the show. Brian is the co-founder and CEO of OpenSauce and previously DevRel at, at GitHub and Employee 3 at Netlify. In this episode, we're going to cover all things DevRel and open source. And so welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, quite the honor and uh, I've been loving listening to these things. So let's start off with your backstory. How'd you come to found open source and, and also just, I mean, really talk through the journey of getting into tech, getting into Netlify, things like that. I usually start 2008, graduate a finance degree out of college, had no job, no network and no finance job really. So took a sales job, did that for about four years, got my MBA. Well, actually, while getting my MBA, decided I was going to build like this little side project, this app, because I had this idea and was like, hey, I've always tinkered with computers. I was lucky enough to have a computer in the apartment complex I grew up in. Eventually got a computer in the house and like I was like copy and paste stuff to like crack Counter-Strike and like Rainbow Six games and stuff like that. So I was knowledgeable enough to like do a MySpace page, but not so much to like build a full app. So I took a finance route, couldn't do that. So years later, I was like, you know what? I know code and I know how to copy and paste. I could probably learn how to build an app. I learned Ruby on Rails and built this little web app called Choich, which we put the Y in church. And it was really because at the time we were looking for a church during this like really troubling time. And me and my wife's life, when our, our kid was born 11 weeks early, ended up building the app in 17 weeks. So most of it while being in the hospital. But yeah, I learned how to code and then found out my sales job, I can basically make basically my base pay with a little bit extra as a junior developer. So I was like, I'm going to take my new coding skill and take a job in Orlando, Florida. And I worked for a marketing company called Isaiah's and then did that for 10 months before I got to invited to work at a startup that eventually failed. Uh, it was a boot camp, and then got to Netlify by going to a meetup at Heavybit of all places. Saw the CEO of Netlify speaking on stage. And yeah, I just want to shout out to my TikTok, my last couple of videos, I actually went through a three-part series of how I got that job. I'll link to that in the show notes. But let's talk about, you know, founding open source and what it is that open source does. And also, I guess you start off in Netlify, then you go to GitHub. How does that all tie together to the story of open source? Honestly, it all ties together pretty well, too, as well. So like I, at Netlify, I joined as third engineer. So I was like first engineer didn't have a head of in front of my title. So I was just IC writing code. But the reason they like reached out to me because I was a Netfly user, had my blog and my podcast on there for a year. And they're like, yeah, we need an engineer, but also you're doing content. Could you come do that? So like they kind of pitched me on this like hybrid role. I was like, okay, well, here's my 306090 of like what I would do if it hit the ground at Netlify at an early stage company. And it was just attach yourself to a funnel. So at the funnel I had the idea for is boot camps, boot camps and colleges. So if you can get colleges and boot camps to put Netlify in the curriculum. You have an endless funnel of new developers using it. So then two to three to four years later, they're like all mid-level engineers and they're like leveraging your tool because we decided to re-educate developers. And we sort of coined this ecosystem as a Jamstack. So it's kind of turning what everyone was doing on the head and saying, you know what, you don't need to know all that stuff. We're going to take that piece, the S3 piece, the host your site. Like, we'll do that for you and like do it for free forever. Well, pretty close to forever. Like, there's now different pricing today. But yeah, this really get bottom up strategy. And so, part of my other strategy was go into open source projects and make like a benign change to like their library and then like also add documentation to that. And then I would do, and this is like because I had a sales background, 
it was like hit the street with the biggest projects. And inside my PR, I would add a deploy preview and be like, hey, by the way, here's the documentation live on a URL. Because like normally you'd have to clone it, look at it, because like GitHub had, at the time, didn't have great markdown rendering for PRs. So you'd have to clone it and like run it locally and like, oh, I don't want to do this. Like it's going to sit open for like weeks. So instead, I would just give them a link and they're like, oh, Nellify. So we ended up getting like the React Docs team, which ironically just moved to Vercel recently. But we got the React Docs team. We got Docasaurus before Docasaurus like was shipped. Shout out to James Kyle who led that effort. And yeah, a bunch of other open source projects through this one. In, it's like a sales engagement, really, where I was just pitching a bunch of maintainers to leverage Nellify. And during that time to track all this stuff, I created a CRM tool, which was called at the time Open Source. And where I would track all the PRs and stuff that was open to be able to say, oh, so-and-so hasn't responded to this one. Gatsby's going to get back to us and be like, tell us if they want to use us. Like, basically, just like lining it up. It'd be like, this is like my fun Friday work, doing open source contributions and then sending doc updates. So built open source as like around the time GraphQL became like the premier thing, 2016, 2017. GitHub had announced that they were going to use GraphQL as their next version of the API. So I was like, oh, let me just inject that into what I'm doing already and got invited to speak at GitHub Universe because I was one of like the earliest users of the GitHub GraphQL API outside of employees. And I gave that talk, and then that talk is what had a couple employees reach out to me and say, hey, you should work at GitHub doing this DevRel thing. And I was the first developer advocate hired at GitHub historically. There had been people who had did the role or had like the open source team, like Mike McQuaid, who just announced he was leaving after 10 years just a couple weeks ago. They all built like open source guide and they built all this other engagement to open source, but no one had the actual advocate title. So I was the first one to join in 2018. And then we were two developer advocates for the first two years of my role at GitHub, engaging by the time we hired the next person, like we had 60 million developers worldwide. <laughs> that's like crazy. That's just that's yeah. just an insane. I mean, the fact that I was too, I'm assuming like the rest of the org was also helping as well. Like, you know, this is one of the questions we'll we'll get into later, but like in general, was GitHub as a whole very, were they embracing the role of DevRel, not just, hey, Brian, go do your thing, but also like, hey, we're all here to support you. Like, how were you able to just cover as two people cover that many developers? So I'd say like the first probably eight years of GitHub was everyone kind of did it. Like Netlify, same thing. Like even though I was I was an engineer, we had other engineers who were also doing something similar to me, which they now call developer experience at Netlify. And so the ethos of GitHub existed that everyone jumped in the community went to Ruby on like the RailsConf and like participated and like if you need connection to like the node team someone at the company had a connection but it was all unstructured and like when I joined we started adding structure to it like the cadence I had at Netlify of, like oh here are my connection here's my Rolodex of the people I've been meeting that's the structure and then it was the same thing when I went to GitHub so yes everyone basically empowered me to do what I wanted to do but GitHub pre-Microsoft was all like there's tons of stories about this, but like GitHub had no management for years. So it was very flat. And then when I got to GitHub, it was like there were some folks who had been there for years. But when you're there that long, there was like this culture of everyone's like a super IC. There wasn't a lot of management because culturally there was not a lot of management. So it was like really doing my sales knowledge of like this networking. So I networked my way into making sure everyone knew who I was internally. I joked that I was the Beyonce of GitHub because everyone knew who I was, and I supported our, at the time when I joined, 25 million developers worldwide in 2018. So every Thursday, to go into the office and have lunch with all the new employees. So that way, all the new employees knew who I was. 
And it was just what you would do if you were in a sales role, networking, going after work, be at a bar, a very famous bar. So I'd show up there on the Friday happy hours as well, networking and make sure people know who B. Dougie was. So it was like intentional to be in front of that. But the way we were able to be two developer advocates for so long is that we just scaled like what we did. So the same way I would go into open source projects and like use that network effect, I would do that same thing at GitHub, which ironically, like there was no definitive list of top projects on GitHub. It was all word of mouth or hand wavy stuff. So we developed our first top 100 GitHub projects internally. So like we knew what the strategy was to go reach out. So like when we had GitHub Actions launch the second time in 2019 with CI, the goal was to get the top 25 JavaScript projects on GitHub Actions. And all I did was just go into my Rolodex and say, okay, these are the top 25 that we developed that we put the list together. Within a week, we had 20 of them using GitHub Actions publicly in a public repo. And it was the same tactic I used at Netlify. Just like, hey, here's a PR, here's a quick DM conversation showing you what you could do. It doesn't have to be in the main repo. We just want to see if you can give us feedback in like one of the side projects or your documentation. And that was a strategy, and that's what we launched at GitHub Universe with all the names of the open source projects that used us was through this tactic. At Boltstart, we like to call that the ground game. Getting out there, getting in front of people, and I think you just naturally, I, I mean, I guess, it, like you said, it came from the sales job, I guess, but you just naturally knew that that's what you were supposed to do. And then in the meantime, you it sounds like you were also using open source to do your role or augment your role at various companies, right? And so how did that lead to now saying, hey, okay, I'm going to full on, you know, start building open source as my full-time job? Yeah, and it really started in 2020 when everything went remote. Like GitHub's still a remote-friendly company. They're like RIP, their offices, they're shutting down at the end of the year. But once we were remote, like I had all this energy to do something, but nowhere to go. Like I was traveling a ton before in 2019. In 2020, I was like, I'm going to live stream building open source because I had not touched it after joining for about a year, like 18 months. And I was like, I kind of want to get back in the game, like do some open source contributions. Let me just build this thing out more where I can start tracking where I can contribute personally. And that was a project. It was like still the CRM. And then what happened was folks watched me do it on stream. They're like, hey, could you add log into this? Like this would be nice for me to track my stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. So like by the summer 2020, we had a full on project that people logged in, tracked their contributions. We started with discovery. I get shared to this project last year, hot open sauce at pizza. We built enough Christmas of 2021. And we built an algorithm to identify up and coming projects, less than 100 stars. It was basically just looking at open source users, what they're starring, compare and contrast, and start surfacing stuff that people are getting successful contributions in. But like during this entire time between like 2020 to 2021, I was also building all these like internal scripts. Like I was like script on script on script. And like one of the scripts I built was just go check to see if someone has an action.yaml file. Like go check your workflows and see if you have actions. And that's how I did the whole JavaScript, 25 JavaScript project is like run the script. Here's my list. Whoever doesn't have an action, like a workflow file, I'll reach out to them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you're someone who knows open source. I mean, you've lived open source uh, your, your whole developer career. And I think one thing I'd love to ask you about, I guess, is, okay, if someone asks you, Brian, how do I know this open source community is just crushing it, just absolutely taking off, right? And of course, you know, you have Git stars, you know, you can see contributor graphs, things like that. But I guess from your perspective, right, how do you identify, hey, this is a open source community or project that is really growing and maybe it doesn't have 5,000 stars, right? Maybe it only has 
a hundred. I don't know. But like, how do you really kind of diagnose the health? Actually, I explained what open source was. I didn't explain what it is today. And like our tagline today is like, we're doing enterprise level insights to unlock startup innovation. But the idea is finding out if the project's doing well. Like stars is a really good indication of like, okay, people, they actually have seen this thing. Like there's some traction, like it's high level. It's like, if you see a line outside of Tartine in, in San Francisco, it's like, oh, I'm going to stand in that line because there must be something happening here that I should be standing in this line. The challenge with stars is like jQuery is like one of the top 100 projects on GitHub. Maybe everyone doesn't know this, but jQuery, it's basically a maintenance mode. Like it's still supporting enterprises. They still have, a, at this point, one person who's been maintaining it, part of the JS Foundation. There might be another person, I might be a misspoke there, but there's like not a real reason to put jQuery in that top 100 list. So like, how do you start you know, moving the noise away from what actual the signal is? And so with open source, like we've been focused on GitHub pull requests. So it's a good centralized notification of like, there's some activity happening. Obviously, it's not the best because like Linux projects, they don't use PRs. They do private diffs and use only Git servers and stuff like that. So with that, like seeing activity over time is a good indicator. So like what we've been showing off is 30 days, last 30 days, you'll see all of JavaScript and you'll see what projects and contributions are happening. If you want to slice the data down into your own dashboard, and you get to see your 10 projects you care about or the 20 projects you care about. I just want to go through some of the, I wouldn't say buzzwords, but the roles that exist. There's developer advocates, there's community evangelists, there's DevRel, right? There's all these different titles and different ways of approaching it. And so for the founders and the people listening, what is DevRel and how would you define the job? Yeah, that's a great question. This is like, they have whole conferences about this. But I would say DevRel exists as a function to expand reach at the end of the day. So like at GitHub, my pitch to everyone who talked to me about DevRel and like why the role existed is that I existed to build more developer advocates of GitHub. Now, I didn't need to hire them to make them advocates of GitHub. But if it was like inviting, giving a free ticket to a conference or inviting them onto a podcast or giving them free GitHub for their hackathon, like I wanted them to be empowered to advocate for GitHub. Like a lot of what I did, like there's definitely community, there's definitely evangelism, like there's all these other roles and like even developer experience is another role that people want to like kind of mince and try to put into like a, this is this and this is this and this is how many advocates. But at GitHub, like we had two advocates and all we did was empower people to use GitHub. So like we had this one engagement where we taught GitHub apps, GitHub API, ecosystem, webhooks, integrations, all through this thing called GitHub Craftwork. And it was all self-paced learning through GitHub repos, which the repo would open an issue, it would react to you through GitHub Actions. And it was all self-paced. And we went to Brazil, we went to Europe using this one engagement. And then we would, part of the process before we hit the ground was like get it all translated. So we'd like leverage community to be like, hey, we've got this workshop, it's all in English, but if you want to help us with some translations, here we go before we hit the ground running. So we did that for Brazil. And we got Brazilians who were like users of GitHub. And Brazil at the time, I went down in 2019, it was the fourth most emerging market for GitHub. The reason why GitHub's gone from 25 when I joined to 100 million today is because it's all emerging market. It's like setting up an office in India. It's being in Brazil. It's going to Colombia. It's being in China before COVID. Like that was a big focus of my team. I went to China in 2018. So 
it's really just like putting yourself in a place that you can empower more advocates to advocate on your behalf. And what that ended up turning into, at least for GitHub's purpose, was stars.github.com, which me and the team launched back in 2020, which is all the top 100 influencers, which I'm, I don't shy away from the word influencer in the developer space, but some people do. But these are folks that have a community already attached to them. So rather than me, like I never built community as an advocate because once you build community, like you're stuck. <laughs> you're stuck to always feed that and you have to hire somebody full time. But if you can empower, I put this out to any founder who's thinking about doing open source and community, empower your community to be self-sustainable. So either pick a community and attach yourself to that or pick a person that has a community and attach yourself to them you'll be able to scale yourself much faster because as soon as you get stuck into, a lot of folks get stuck into just React. And like they get the React community on board, but then they can never get outside of the React community. That's interesting because the React example is, it can take you quite far because you can get very fervent users within that community. But then of course, you're kind of shoehorning yourself into one place. How do you think about that depth versus breadth equation, right? Where it's like, okay, let's just say you're getting a lot of, traction, getting advocates in one narrow space, right? So obviously that's pretty exciting because you're getting a lot of folks in that space. Should you be thinking in the back of your mind though, like, hey, listen, this is starting to work. Let me kind of like let that be self-sustainable and then see if I can spin it up someplace else. Or how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, so React easy one, like I think you'll be successful if you just cater to the React community because it's the depth is deep enough. But like in 2014, like the React documentary came out. Everyone knows the story now. I lived the story. Like I learned React in 2014 and off of a whim, I met Ryan Florence at a meetup and he invited me to Pinterest to do React training the day before I took my job at Netlify, which like not even an exaggeration, literally went to Netlify. I was like, hey, I got a training. Could you pay for it? It was a diversity ticket. So it was like almost nothing to pay for, but like I still couldn't afford it. So did that. When I got hired, we we're going to build an Ember app, build like the entire ecosystem and Netlify is Ember. And then I went to React Training. I was like, yeah, actually. And Matt also agreed, like React is the future. Like there's a little more there and the community is growing. You can see it in San Francisco and all the meetups. So we ended up going into the React community, not by chance, but more of like this inertia. And then we sort of, that summer that I joined, I wrote the blog post, deploy your React app in 30 seconds. Because everyone tried to like do GitHub pages and like Netlify was a better experience. So we did that. Like with that said, like React made sense and it still makes sense. But if you chose the same thing and said like, oh, say spelt, we're going to go super deep and in depth and spelt. I'd probably caution you and be like, not that spelt is not it. I think it's a great community and tutorial, but I just don't think the community is as deep as you get in React. But yeah, I just cautioned you to like start looking around to see if like there's other representation of people you want to look like in the future. And if that's not the case, then like you're going to be, you'll be first in the gate, which could be beneficial or it could be detrimental. Right. Okay. That makes sense. One thing is you built a massive following on all social media platforms. I mean, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you've got multiple podcasts, right? So lots of people hear your name, hear what you're doing. They know who you are, but let's say you're you, starting at Netlify, but specifically for the DevRel role, right? Yeah. I guess, do you need that social media following to be successful? And do you need to constantly be putting out these videos and doing this stuff in order to be successful in in the DevRel space? Yeah, I'd say like 100% no. Even when I was at Netlify, 
the podcast I had that I hosted on Netlify, the website itself was called This Developing Story. And I think at the time I joined Netlify, I was getting 70 downloads a week. So like you're getting way more than 70 downloads a week just from this. But that's the numbers I was putting out. And I would probably have like maybe like a 1,500 Twitter followers. So like I definitely wasn't like the celebrity star studded. But I think when it comes down to if you take the the concept, you mentioned the ground game, but like take that further in the sports. Like if you play on a good team, like you could do good work. But if you're the st- only star on the team, you're going to do like okay work. Like LeBron struggles even on the Lakers. It doesn't matter Russell Westbrook or whoever comes over and gets traded or traded away. Like if there's enough there that people can all fit in their role and the pieces, it makes it so much easier. But if you're all stars, then that also becomes struggling. You can't all be stars. And I think we saw that years ago at Microsoft, the Azure advocates. They were all stars. And then they ended up disbanding. Because at the end of the day, like it this comes down to you don't need all of that. I just happen to like doing a lot. And what I do is I, I set up systems where I can test. I did TikTok in 2020 and I tested it. I was like, I'm going to do TikTok for 10 weeks. We're going to figure out how this algorithm works. And as soon as I figured it out, I stopped. Because at the end of the day, I didn't want to be a TikTok star because like, once you get to that point, you have to feed it and feed it and feed it and it become, TikTok becomes your thing. And then I did YouTube previously that. I was like, oh, I'm going to figure out the algorithm. And then once I get one that hits, I'm going to take a pause and then I'll figure out exactly what the content I want to do. I lucked out because GitHub had a YouTube account with 80,000 followers. We ended up growing that to like 250 before I left. But then they're like, oh, you did YouTube. Do you want to own the YouTube? So then we ended up taking over YouTube for the DevRel team. And then we started building a strategy that actually made sense that didn't feel like it was going to kill everyone who was part of that vortex of YouTube. So the system that we created, and like I always try to build a system. So like currently I'm doing 30 days of open AI on dev posts. Those 30 days of open AI will turn into 30 TikToks. And those 30 TikToks will turn into like maybe five YouTube videos. And if you could take repurpose your content where your blog posts become your video scripts and your video scripts become your clips and your clips become your conference talks. And then when you're at the conference, you're like, by the way, I have all the content on my blog, my TikTok. So that's my system is like if I can feed the entire system and not feel like I have to always like ship a video every week, then it actually works out better for me. Because at the end of the day, it's like it's not about having 100,000 followers on Twitter or on YouTube or whatever, but it's about having a presence that when you Google B-Dougie, or Beyonce of open source, my name shows up. And that helps validate me getting to, like, I'll be keynoting open source 101 on Thursday. Because I have all the content out there, I get reached out to by Todd, who runs all things open and stuff like that, to say, hey, we've got a space for you. Would you like to talk about what you're doing and what open source is all about? So, yeah, I would say, like, setting up, like, the base layer. And this is, a, when I go into DevRel, like, in GitHub, I did this. I'm doing this right now at open source. I did this at Nellify. You set up, your content in a way that's, you have to do the one-on-one first. So if you're trying to teach Jamstack, if no one understands what Jamstack is or understands the pieces of like what this means, like serverless functions and how do you manage database, you have to build all that base layer first. And then once you have the base layer, then you go up to the 201, which is, okay, connected together. Here's my tutorials. Here's my screencast. Once that's there, 301, 401, it's like get companies, get influencers to also share their stories and go into deeper case studies. And... That's what we're doing with open source. That's what we did at GitHub for every feature, including actions. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious to learn from you is how do you evaluate the success of your DevRel efforts, right? So I think sometimes the ROI can be pretty clear, like, hey, I get more followers, I get views, stuff like that. But as you said, like, hey, that's how you chose to do it. That's not necessarily the only path that 
people can do to get value from their DevRel efforts. So what sort of metrics, is this something that is more tied to brand marketing or marketing in general than it is tied to like specific customer leads? Like, how do you actually really say for a founder who's trying to figure out, is this working or not, right? How do they know? Yeah, engagement. And it's like a hand wavy, but like, so I ran OKRs for the GitHub DevRel team. So I left as a director. So I, it was a, my job to pick the numbers that we had to strive for. So like on YouTube, TikTok, like we ended up launching the GitHub TikTok as well. Like views didn't matter. Views are great. We had a bi-weekly report we sent to the C-levels. Every other week we sent like news of like the DevRel impact. Made it very easy to get our bonuses approved and stuff like that. But we would put like the high, like, oh, we hit a million views on this. Good job. But the beauty of that is like, hey, we got 2,000 comments. And those 2,000 comments become a gold mine of like, are these engaging comments? Are these comments asking more questions about features? Are they were feature requests? And like when you look at the comment count and the engagement there, everything else works. So then the gimmick is like, how do I get people to comment? Let's ask a question. So instead of like to stand on the soapbox and be like, hey, I'm so smart. We're so cool. We did a thing. It's more of like, hey, did you know you can order a pizza through GitHub Actions? <laughs> my opening statement for like one of my most best performing TikToks. And if you don't believe me, let's check it out here. And here's the Action YAML. Here's a pizza box that I had. And like this exploded worth of like people like, oh, wow, didn't know that was a thing. What else could you do? Let me go look for other cool ideas. And then like you end it with a comment below for other cool ideas that you want to do. And like that was our gimmick of one, teach the viewer something they had no idea they could do on GitHub, engage them with the question, and then follow up to respond to every single comment within like the first couple hours. Where does DevRel go wrong? And maybe this is a, a hot take or something like that, but have you seen it ever go too far? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because I could think of some TikToks that went too far uh, from DevRel teams. I think if you have to, if you have to put yourself in a place that you don't belong, and I say that in belong as in like, if you're not credible, it's never going to work. So like, there's no reason to do like the latest fad on TikTok or the latest fad on Twitter just because someone else is doing it. And I think we see this a lot. I, I mentioned Superbase. Like Superbase has done a great job because their CTO is a, he's a, an extremely funny person. So if you ever talk to Ant, Extremely funny. He's from Scotland. But he does all the memes. Like he knows the developers so well. And he's the one doing the memes on the Twitter account. So like it's hard to go wrong when you kind of understand the audience and you're a funny person. But if you're like not funny and you're just hired to do, run the Twitter account and you think you can like bring memes into the, the mix, you have to own it. If you have to be happily funny and you can do make like one off quips that make sense, like then go for it. But I think it's one where like we put ourselves in an uncomfortable position because there's a fad that we're trying to chase. So that could go wrong. Like I did this whole series, a heavy bit. We had this um, in-person meetup all about like breadcrumbs and onboarding. And like, how do you set up onboarding where you can, like the thing I pride myself on is the 30 seconds to deploy to React. 30 seconds, by the time you learn Netlify, you should have a site deployed. So how do we put stuff in front of people's faces and in front of articles to say, here's a deploy to Netlify button? Like before the article was even started, I'm like, hey, if you just want to see this thing live, click the button, you've got a site. And now you're like, oh, wow, I get it. But if you're going to drive a car, like Tesla does this too as well, it's like, hey, come in, do a drive test, like get behind the wheel. Because once you're behind the wheel, you're like, oh, okay, I love this thing. It's like, I need to buy it. But if you're like, this was with the blockchain folks back in the day, well, back in the day, <laughs> last year, uh, it was always like, oh, try my new blockchain API, but by the way, bring your wallet, set up this token, and then you want to also 
weren't all about crypto and numbers and and all this other stuff and money when I'm just trying to build like an API. That's why any blockchain company that has to put people through KYC, you really lost. This might be a weird question, but I got to ask you just because I think you'd have a good viewpoint on it. With GitHub Copilot and with ChatGPT and all these things coming out, is that at all a threat to DevRel? Like, does the magic of live coding <laughs> go away when you're coding the first few lines and then all of a sudden GitHub Copilot has written the, the yes. rest of it for you? I've got this question a couple of times and I have to be a part of like the tangential strike team for Copilot as well. So I was the one that got all the influencers to do content day one or day zero. But I'd say like the microwave didn't like ruin going out to eat like by any means. So I think like you'll get enough there that like if calories in is all you need, then the microwave is perfect. But if you want an experience and you want to like learn the sort of inner workings of how farm to table works, you're still going to go out to eat. And you might pay more. So developers in the sense, like are maybe developers are cheaper. I don't think that's a sense because I think you still need to understand like how to write the prompts to get what you want. So like that will be the new technique. Like the same way where before you had to be a full stack developer, you had to do CSS and you had to run the kernel. That's no longer true anymore. Now you have infrastructure, you have back end, you have front end. So with this sort of open AI, like this sort of movement of AI now, I think what it does is this basically gets us past the first tier where now I can't buy a car that's manual unless I want to pay a premium. I think now if you want a developer that can give you a bespoke experience, you might pay a premium. But at the end of the day, like everyone might be starting with like, okay, let me just run through the tab completion to see like what I get and then this polished that instead. I'd love to ask you actually, because you know, you do Jamstack Radio, you've been doing that for a long time. And one thing that I'm super curious about is the Jamstack ecosystem in general is one that's very hard for me to personally understand. I don't understand why it just, and I'll, I'll put out the question, but basically, why is it that so few things in the Jamstack are actually sticky? I feel like the minute I hear something comes out, there's Gatsby, there's whatever, there's everything else. There's going to be like the next best things in sliced bread, right? .js that comes up, right? And it seems like every single time people get super excited, they jump to it. There's this fervor of everybody, you know, queuing up things and creating stuff. And then the next version of something comes out and then everyone just, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people then leave and go to this next thing. And so what is happening? Like, just explain to me. <laughs> like, do, Yeah, this is an amazing question. Yeah. Just like, what, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is basically, and this is something that um, we actually did a lot of conversation about internally at Netlify when I was there. It's like, we wanted to create a movement of this Jamstack engineer. What we have now is like folks who could put a lot of pieces together. So it is similar to OpenAI where you can get a lot done pretty quickly with one person. And I think with the Jamstack, same thing. So you can go grab Clerk for Auth and you can grab Superbase for your database and go deploy it on Vercel and then maybe use Tailwind for CSS. And I think Tailwind's pretty sticky. But I think what we have is like that sort of JavaScript fatigue that was happening about like five, six years ago is kind of rebirthed itself into like Jamstack, where I'm definitely part of the problem where like we have new, exciting new technologies. And I think as compute gets cheaper, people are building new tools and new little projects around one corner. So whether it's serverless functions, now it's edge functions. Before it was like NoSQL databases. Eventually someone hits a ceiling with that stuff. And I think we actually hit our ceiling with our database user. 
And that's why we had to rebuild our own infrastructure in our own database. Because like at the end of the day, like there's a certain point where you want to drive a manual or when you want to like get down and put your hands in the dirt. And I think we're still there. Like if you really want to have control and like control your future of how big your business becomes or how deeply connected you are to your end user, you got to put your hands in the dirt. And until we have prescribed like ramps of like, this is how we do things. So like Next.js has done that for us with a lot of the ecosystem when it comes to front end and React. As long as you can plug it in the next, you have consistency. And like, if you asked me about Next.js five years ago, I'm like, I don't know, like there's a Gatsby thing. Like maybe you try that instead or try this. But now it's very clear. Like I think it was like 80% of all React apps deployed is Next.js. So now we have that stickiness there. So now it's like the auth, the database. Like, do I use PlanetScale? Do I use Superbase? Do I roll my own? So now it's, we need that longevity of these companies that are early stage, like hit that growth stage. So that way there is that consistency and it is there is that enterprise tier. Because like in the Jamstack, there are a lot of companies that are in the last five years, I think thanks to like the Jamstack fund, that have only been around for so long. So it's hard to roll the dice on using them, but it needs somebody to use them and solidify it. And so the question is like, should it be you or should it be like somebody else and you just try the next thing or build your own? And yeah, it's interesting because we started open source as Jamstack. It's still Jamstack app. Like we still use like a bunch of tools to empower us to do this. But the one thing we sort of hit our heads on is like what we're trying to do is like pretty ambitious, which is crawl all of Git repos in existence to support and provide insights and analytics to it. And we need that control to control our future. So that control means that we are hosting our own, own database and we have AWS credits and we're using Azure credits. And like that gets us closer to like whatever our venture scale API solution, like that, we can control that narrative. All of what we mentioned, like we're using Superbase. Superbase, we had to decide to move off of because we were at the enterprise tier and we didn't even raise our first round. So like that's that's pretty crazy. We can't have an enterprise conversation when we literally have like less than six months of runaway. Yeah. In terms of that, the Jamstack space, I mean, the idea is, hey, you're a developer, you just write your business logic, everything else is handled for you, is at least the vision that I feel like gets pitched to yeah. me with the Jamstack. I'm just curious, like your opinion, you've talked to a number of people in the ecosystem, stuff like that. Will we ever truly achieve that vision? Because from my perspective, I talk to a lot of backend engineers, and I can tell you, a lot of them don't like the idea of just being like, oh, yeah, don't worry. It's all running. Like, it's fine. You know, just let us do its thing. So do you think Jamstack ever bridges the gap to back end? And secondly, just the question of do you ever get that control within the Jamstack or will it always be like this kind of more serverlessly don't worry about it sort of thing? Yeah, and this is something I predicted in early 2021. I did one of my YouTube videos I did was the evolution of database as a service. And before it was like all NoSQL and Mongo and et cetera and Fauna. And now we see like a planet scale and superbase, which are interesting because you can inject. So what we did is we ejected into DigitalOcean the same superbase we're using. We just moved it into DigitalOcean. So it gives us a control, but it doesn't give like, and I think that I love that about Superbase is that it gives you sort of that pathway into, okay, I'm ready to do my own thing. And I think a lot of the tools, like another benign tool, which is PostHog. PostHog is this like analytics infrastructure into your, your application, also has a eject self-hosted version as well. So I think if we can get, it's the on-ramp really. So like if you can get someone to deploy something as fast as possible using a hosted solution in the Jamstack, but then be able to eject and say, okay, now we're building an infrastructure team. We don't want them to relearn 
Like imagine if you built on Squarespace and you're like, okay, now I'm going to hire engineers. Like they're going to be like, yeah, we're starting this from scratch. But you don't have to, what we got to do is we spent just a couple months transitioning into where we could own our infrastructure, but not have to rehire or reconfigure the team. It's the same team. It just happens to be we just were ready for that situation to happen. So I think the future is that sort of you can drop down. And the beauty of like Superbase, it's Postgres is the underlying technology. So as you know that, you're good. And then Planet Scale is MySQL. So as long as it's like the, not this weird hand wavy architecture that's all closed source, and I think the beauty of open source is that at least you can dig in and understand what's going on. Yeah. One thing I've learned throughout this talk is basically the focus on reducing friction, whether it's through the product itself or also through the DevRel efforts that you have done successfully over your career and others in the space as well. So I think that's a pretty interesting takeaway for me from this conversation. But to wrap things up, we have two questions we like to ask everyone on Software Snack Bites. The first one is, what's your favorite technology or app that you've played with or researched recently? I really like and replicate for AI, hosted AI instances. So it's kind of like GitHub for data models. I guess is, I don't know if, I, if I'm selling them properly, but uh, essentially you have a GitHub repo and ha- maybe it has a data model or you have it somewhere else. You can host that viewable on Replicate and they'll give you the interaction. They'll be able to share that other places. So I've been messing around with AI. A lot of interesting models that are out there, like to be able to, one is um, identify someone who still has the default avatar on GitHub. One of the things that we wanted to identify is things like spam. We did this for Hacktoberfest last year. And if you have a default avatar in the last 30 days, a brand new account, you're probably spamming because chances are you're like not a brand new GitHub user doing your first PR into Hacktoberfest. So yeah, that was a really cool thing to sort of test out and try from one of my former colleagues at GitHub built that and now works at Replicate. So final question is, yeah, what's your favorite snack? Okay, yeah, pistachios, man. My kids have now learned, I've got a four-year-old and a nine-year-old, and they have now can open up their own pistachios. So like, we will spend like Saturday afternoon eating a whole bag of lightly salted pistachios. Oh, that sounds amazing. I've got a bunch of garlic roasted ones actually from Trader Joe's in my cupboard that I'm looking, oh, at, nice. looking to get into. But well, Brian, thanks so much for the time and, and all the insights. You're, I think you're all over the place, but where should people find you if they'd like to get in touch? You can find me on Twitter, bdougio. Um, pretty active in the DMs, but like, if it's an open source question, please ask that in public. It's a lot easier to point that into a uh, GitHub issue when I when you ask me for some support advice or whatnot. So yeah, at mention me, and then you could. I'm pretty heavy following my GitHub notifications. So if you at mention me on GitHub, be Dougie, I will see it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, and we're looking forward to seeing what Open Source does in the future. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. 